Okay. So, yesterday we learned that the godly soul is a piece of God in the way that a child is a piece of the father's brain. Right? And we do not mean that we're doing little lobotomies and taking parts of their brain and turning them into babies. Right? God only did that once, where he took a part of a person and turned it into another person. Right, okay. So, and if we're going to boil down what we learned yesterday, is that the idea is that the idea of procreation is taking the muhus, the essence of the father, and turning that into another full person in their own right. And it's giving a new metzias, giving a new presence to that essence. And that's what the mother does. So, the godly soul being derived from God in the way a child is derived from the brain of the father means that the essence of the godly soul is the same as the essence of God. Which is a fancy way of saying what makes God godlike is what makes the godly soul godlike. Or that the godly soul is as godly as God is. So now I'm going to ask you, what does it mean to be godlike? Because if you can't tell me what it means to be godlike, then you don't really know what makes the godly soul special. No, not necessarily. But I'll tell you a funny story. I mean, by the end of the class, you should be able to say some things. Um, so, my wife's family, my wife was born in Russia, communist Russia. And uh, one of my neighbors once asked my wife, were you in your Russia, were your family chassidim, were they misnagdim, what were they? And so my wife says, my family were communists. <laughs> um, they actually were her grandparents were members of the party. Not real ideological members, but they were members of the party. Anyway, so one time we were having a Shabbos meal, um, and I was explaining everything, like what's Kiddush, what's going along. So one of these... What? I'm going with the bird. Okay, so the bird will have to wait. (laughs) The... So... So, and by Kiddush, one of the things we sing is Eishas Chayel, which is from... Mishle from Proverbs. Um, there's a whole reason why we say it. And I'm explaining that the, it's, a, it's a poem about this woman, and the woman represents the Jewish people, and the husband represents God. But there's also the idea that, you know, the husband is saying it to his wife, which is like one of those things that, yeah, it's nice, it's romantic, beautiful. That's not actually the reason we said it. The real reason we said it, it's referring to the relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people. Um, but it's okay. When you get married, your husband can say she's chayel and refer to you. It's fine. So I'm explaining this, and so one of my wife's um, relatives, one of uh, her her aunt, she turns to her husband and says, "How come you don't sing me poetry like this?" And he responds, "Well, why don't you treat me like God? <laughs> because right, the, the husband in Asia's chayel is God. Right? Now, does he have a point? All joking aside." Like, what would be the right follow-up to that? How do you treat someone like God? Yeah. Well, I would say like this. I'll treat you like God if you act like God. Okay, well, what are some of the things the Torah tells us about God? He's infinitely kind. Compassionate. He's compassionate. He's kind. He's judging. What? He's also a harsh judger. Where does it say in the Torah he's a harsh judger? When he judges what? He 
Yeah, but I want to know in essence. No, but to see, this is very important. This is very important. This is where this is where we have to separate from just doing like philosophy versus Judaism. We know what's true about Hashem because He tells us. We don't say, "Well, God is infinite, so therefore He has infinite in every respect." No. There's actually nowhere that says God is infinite in the Chumash. There's nowhere in the Prophets where it says that God is infinite. It's actually even debate in Jewish theology, which we'll get to next week or the week after, whether God is infinite at all. I know that comes as a shock to people. Right. What it, in Kabbalah and only in Kabbalah. Okay. It says he's. It says I'll give you things. Says he never changes. It says he's compassionate. He definitely has opinions over what's right and what's wrong. What does that mean he never changes? Well, that's a good question. But so what does that things, mean in human life? Uh, we're, I'm going to that. But I'm saying, before you that, there are things that, first off, from the psukim we can know, from the verses what we know about God. And then we have how those verses have been understood in our tradition. Okay? Um, the Ramam actually has a whole section of the guy to the perplexed where he goes to the fact, the idea that saying God is cruel is both A, not supported anywhere by the verses, and B, is logically ridiculous. I'm not going to go into why that is. So it's not just you take everything and just tap on the word infinite and then that's God. That's sloppy. Okay. So we're going to start do a few things. Obviously, we're not going to be able to do everything about God, but we're going to do a few things. Okay. Um, first thing we're going to do, and this is something we've mentioned earlier, okay, which is God psychologically vulnerable. And how do I know? Not because Rabbi Kaufman said in the class. Like, is there a verse that says that? Is there anywhere in the, in the written or oral Torah that indicates that? Or is that just something we'd like to believe because, you know, it makes us feel good? Psychologically Vulnerable. There is a verse. It's actually explicit. The verse says, Behold, Tsar, Awesome, Light, Tsar. In all of their pain, he is pained. Right, what does psychological vulnerability mean? That I allow the negativity in your life to be felt and experienced and be hurt by me in a way that I can still manage, I can still write, that's, comes, that's what allows beings to connect to each other. So you have a verse, at least when it comes to Jewish people, that any pain that any Jew is in, God also was bothered by that, God also was pained by that. Now, so we spoke about this before, people, right, we limit how psychologically vulnerable we are, why do we do that? protect ourselves. Does God have to limit how psychologically vulnerable he is in order to protect himself? No. Okay. So is there a limit to how much God can care about another person? Okay. So is there a limit to how much your godly soul can care about another person? So I go back to, if you act like God, maybe we should treat you like God. If somebody walked around allowing themselves to really care about everybody fully and ultimately because they tapped into their godly soul, people might treat them very differently, right? How many people start treating that person? Yeah. When did we make the leap from God can be like infinitely psychologically vulnerable to that part of his essence? Um, I fudged it, actually, and we're going to address it later in Tanya. Like shortly. Not today. I don't think we're going to get to it today. We're going to, in this chapter, we're going, to, we're going to address it. Should I just look away and you No, you shouldn't. No, I mean, you should just... I, 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 I did skip something because the altar... Because 
the Alter Rebbe is about to address it, but because I want to I'm bring things for this class, for this class, yeah, for this class, like it's going to be talked about, but not right now. We are right. Not like the fact that God created mosquitoes is not part of His essence, right? So why is that? every description about God is not necessarily an essential thing of His being? So why am I picking up on this one? But I'm going to go through, we're going to start with this one, we'll go some other ones, and then why all of these ones, we'll get, well, I will address later. Okay, so, yeah, just because it's true doesn't mean it's essential. So, so what would you, ha- I would imagine if you had a person who had no inner sense of withholding psychological vulnerability from other people in terms of caring and feeling their pain and being bothered what's going on and wanting to be there for them. If there was a person that was like that, how would other people start to treat them? Like a leader. Like a leader. Would they take? Would Would they feel the need to? Would they feel the need for that person to, per, um, justify and convince and cajole them into listening to them, or they would just feel like this person is really somebody I should just whatever comes out of their mouth carries a lot of weight with me. Would they wouldn't be around this person? Okay. Would they be in awe of this person? Are these kinds of things that we kind of think of in terms of worship of God? So it's not like a, it's a, it sounds cute and silly, but then you actually start to think of it. If someone actually starts to really exhibit qualities like that, the natural response is people also start treating them like God. Yeah. We will talk about that. When we turn the page. And then the page again. Okay. Yeah. Is it possible for someone to tap into this, like, infinite, this power so that you can infinitely go to someone psychologically vulnerable? Yeah. People? Yeah. Like, even people who are it's coming from a good place or, like, they're being kind to everybody, they still have a limit. But remember, we're, we're talking about there's two souls. There's a godly soul and there's an animal soul. How would you identify more as Well, I'm going to not answer any question like that. And the reason why is because the first eight chapters of Tanya, as I said before, the Alter is just going to explain each idea kind of isolation. And then when it's our, and then when you have all the all the kind of the whole thing together, and you start reading how it fits together, you can kind of usually by being a little bit honest with yourself realize that it's probably not coming entirely from your godly soul, and that you do have some kind of you, you get it. So like, you need to be able to like because you acknowledge it, but then. Fine, but then that's why there's a whole book. I mean, I'm not right. Right, I'm just there is this there is this part of you which is capable of that. How do you get in touch with that? How do you know there's such a that's why there's rest of the book? Okay. All right. Now, so that's one thing. Here's another thing. Can God be improved upon? Improved upon, oh, like made oh, made better. Sorry. Can you like can, can you do something to like make God into better than He already is? No. How about worse than He already is? Okay, so then what about the godly soul? So the godly soul is the same. Can you make the godly soul better than it already is? Can you make it worse? Oh, you can reveal it more, right? I mean, that we spoke about yesterday, right? Whether God has a presence in the world and what kind of presence is a separate question, right? Right? But this is very important. So there's a part of each and every one of us which, number one, has an infinite capacity to care and be vulnerable about others. 
That part of us can never be improved upon. It can never be. Is that um, because it's perfect? That's because it's like God. So we're just taking things that are essentially true of God and saying, well, that's all. If the godly soul, right, is, has the same essence of, as like God does, then whatever is essentially true of God is essentially true of the soul. So there's a part of you that cannot be improved upon. Now, I just want to stop on this point. Think about how does that really mess up Judaism? If you go around telling people there's a part of you that can never be made better and never be made worse. You say, what's the point then? Sort of invincible. What? Invincible a little bit. Yeah. So then is there any point in doing mitzvahs? No, there's no point in doing it. Yeah, okay. So you can see why chassidus would be controversial. Like the Baal Shemdah is going around saying, every Jew has a godly spark. He doesn't mean it allegorically. He means it literally. Oh, right. I didn't say I said controversial, not false. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because, yes, no amount of sinning will take away that godliness, decrease that godliness anyway, and no amount of doing mitzvahs will make it better. But how much that's going to be present and revealed and experienced in your life, that's a separate question. Right. Okay. Um, now I'll move to one of my favorite ones, which is does God have a positive self esteem? Yeah. Yeah, but that's not talking about this. This is, that's talking about the, the difference between Yaakov and Yisrael has to do with the Metzias of the Neshama. That, that's going to do with things that we're going to speak about um, at the end of the page onto the next page. When you, when you, when you talk about the different kinds of Metzias of the Neshama, you can label them, and then, then there's... That, that, before we make it complicated, let's keep it simple. Okay. All right. Does God have a positive self-esteem? Or negative self-esteem. Do we answer the psychologically vulnerable? We said no. What? We said he's not psychologically. He is. There's a verse that says, "Bechol tzara samayt tzara." All that would have, before, before infinite. Any time Jews have are in pain, he's in pain. Now, if what if you have somebody who's in a relationship with someone else, when that person is going through a hard time, you're also going through a hard time. Then what are you to that person? So then what's Hashem? Yes. And so, and In is there any limit to his capacity to be psychologically vulnerable? No, because he can't be destroyed, which is what limits the human capacity okay. to be psychologically vulnerable. So that means your godly soul's capacity to be psychologically vulnerable is infinite. Yeah. So when Chassidus says, reveal your godly soul, one of the things that means is reveal your capacity to care about everybody infinitely without holding anything back, which is a bit scary when you think about that. Okay. Um, God describes himself as like a jealous God. Yes, you want to do jealousy? I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of doing jealousy before self-esteem if you want. We can do that. Jealous God. Okay. What? What? It's a Pasuk. It's a Fipsukim. It's in the Ten Commandments. He says, I'm a jealous God. He says it all over the time. Yeah, okay. Can God be her? Well, it depends what you mean by hurt. Like, like in, in the, the psych- psychological vulnerable sense. Yeah, that's what it says. Beholds are some lights are. He is pain. So even though we could be infinitely vulnerable, that also means we could be. Right. So this way, you have to use. So so, so let's use. Let's take. Let's take away. Let's take. Let's take hurt and decouple it because physically, hurt only physically, um, 
hurt is a little bit is more simplistic. Psychologically, there's two kinds of things that go into hurt. There is pained, and there is damaged. Okay, God can be pained infinitely, and he cannot be damaged at all, right? And it's that, it's that combination. The ability to be pained without being damaged is what gives you the ability to be psychologically vulnerable. God can be infinitely pained and can't be damaged at all. Same thing with godly soul. You want to, I'll just give you an example. My oldest son, when he was two, he fell off the bed and broke his arm. And he had to have his arm set. So someone had to hold him. Now, have you ever seen a child having their arm, and his, his, this part of the arm is like curved, like a no. rainbow. And the doctor has to like take it and go like that. Right, you're, it's already disgusting. Now, but someone has to hold the two-year-old. So who holds the two-year-old? The doctor. Which parent? The doctor. Right, me. Okay, so how do you think that felt? Horrible. Horrible. Very painful. Right, now, as somebody who can't be psychologically vulnerable, is like, my pain at this is too much. It, I feel this is like, it's destroying me. I can't deal with it. So then what happens? They can't bring themselves to do that. On the other hand, fortunately, I at least have that degree of abilities, and I held them and whatever. There's more to the story than the arm had to be rebroken. Again, it was... The whole, yeah, because they said it wrong. Yeah. So, anyway, he vaguely remembers because he had to have um, what do you call them? Pins. pins. And so he vaguely remembers the pins, and there's a scar from the pins. Um, but so, in contrast, there's the story of Hagar. Hagar was the mother of Ishmael. And uh, we're not going to get into why this is, but uh, they were cast out of Avram's house. Oh, and he was dying. Of and he was dying of thirst. And what did Hagar do? She left him. She left because she couldn't bear to watch him die. So that's like the antithesis of this, right? Right? Okay. So Hagar is like a... And you wonder why Ishmael ended up a little bit weird with <laughs> that kind of a mother. <laughs> It depends. You can't handle seeing them in pain and that prevents you from being emotionally engaged with them, then that is, that is a negative thing. If you can't stand being them in pain, but it doesn't prevent you from being engaged with them, in fact, you can, it provides motivation to be more present for them, that's strength. If you can see them in pain and you're totally indifferent, um, then that's, that's probably the worst. Yeah. Okay. So, jealous God. Okay. So, a, a little social commentary. We li live in a society where we have a bunch of things which we label as good and label as bad, like every society. Um, and I would think jealousy tends to go in those things that's labeled as bad. Yeah. yeah? Okay. Why is that? What is, the, what is the underlying value system that makes us automatically label jealousy as a bad thing? Yes. I mean, I'm going to through what I'm feeling things. Jealousy, revenge... Vindictiveness. It's one of the Asher stuff. It's one of the ten. You think that you deserve more than someone else. Why? Oh, it really comes from a value of compassion. It comes from a value, you know, when you value compassion and kindness and getting along, and these things seem to be incompatible with that, that's what causes us to label those things as negative. And it's very important to realize that because what that means is you're not labeling them as negative because you've examined them for what they are, decided that they're negative. You're labeling them as negative because you don't see how they're compatible with things you value. And this is a very important thing that many things that, we, that, that a society rules as negative are not because they said, we've looked at this, we've examined this, and we see that at its core, as in something we should reject. 
but it just seems to conflict something we care about, so then we'll get, we'll get rid of it. Okay. Now, so that means, so one of the basic views that the Torah has is that there, that is a bad way of, of making moral judgments. That's why the Torah doesn't have things that it's fundamentally opposed to on the moral level. There's no, th- in other words, I'm gonna give you a list of things that the Torah does not in principle see as essentially bad. Vengeance, war, jealousy, hatred. These are not things the Torah sees as essentially bad. There's a list of things the Torah does not see as essentially good. Kindness, compassion, um, mercy. mercy, love. Rather, the Torah says, the question is, in what context are these things being used and played out? That's what determines whether they're good or bad. And so before we even get to the question about jealousy, we have to realize that, that maybe if I have bought into a value system which sees love and compassion and kindness as inherent goods and don't see how that's compatible with something like jealousy and vindictiveness, then I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in a position to understand what the Torah means when it says that Hashem is a jealous God. So we have to kind of step out of that bubble. Okay. What is jealousy? No, it's mentioned in the Ten Commandments that Hashem is a jealous God. But you're saying that's not objectively calling it a bad thing? Like by saying... No, it's... Oh, sorry, no, no, no. The jealousy of the Ten Commandments. Oh, that's a different Hebrew word, even. Yeah. But it's the same answer for like, blessing after something else. Okay, right. So it's like this. The Ten... The Latin... It's not the Ten Commandments, whatever. The Tenth Commandment uses the word sachmaid, which just means desire. Okay. Um, or sasava, which is another synonym for desire. And there's a difference between the two. The word when he's used, Hashem is a jealous God, it uses the word kana. Kana connotes jealousy, zealousness, vindictiveness. It's a different word. Okay, so you are saying that what Bati brought up the last commandment. No, but it is mentioned in the Ten Commandments that Hashem is a jealous God. But you're saying in the context of... of a, as a positive description. But, okay. but the idea that we're not supposed to be jealous... What do you mean it's conversation? It says that Hashem is a jealous God. It says that Hashem is a jealous God. Like, not in the... Okay. So, what is... You take a cup, you read it. Okay, so here's the thing. Let's, so let's... Wait, how is zealousness and jealousy connected? Oh, that's what I'm going to get to. Okay. What are you willing to die for? Hmm? What are you willing to die for? I'm serious. Like you don't have to answer that, but that's a serious question, right? That's a good way of evaluating what you really care about, right? <laughs> okay. Here's a stronger question. Okay. And most people, there's actually a stronger question. What are you willing to kill for? And you know why this is a stronger question? Because most people when they're being rational, it's not like in the heat of rage or something. I'm saying when they're being cool and rational, are much more willing to die than they are to kill. I, I, I know, but it's actually not true. See, when, you, when, you, when you talk about a person being, being reflect, in their reflective mindset, the op- when, a person's in, when a person's in a passionate rage, the opposite is true. They're more willing to kill than to die. But when a person's reflective, it's not that way. There is this like, there's this kind of killing. It's a serious thing. 
So what are you willing to kill for? Is even stronger. So what are those questions getting at? What's really important, right? Now, if someone says there's nothing I'm willing to die for, so nothing I'm willing to kill for, what does that mean? I mean, it could mean that they're pacifist, right? What else could it mean? The most important thing is themselves. There's nothing like, there's no, well, there's no. There is something they're willing to die for. Right. If you don't know what you're willing to die for, then what do you live for? Right. In other words, you're. In other words, you're kind of. Past, in other words, there, there's a level of deep attachment that that person just lacks in their existence. In other words, to get to the point, that there's something you're willing to die for. The more so, there's something you're willing to kill for. And again, that you would be, they willing to, in a conscious, calm, reflective state, that I'd be willing to kill for this. Not because you're like your anger got the best of you. Has to be that you have a, a level of attachment that goes very, very deep, goes to your core. Okay. By the way, um, you know which gender is more likely to kill, or willing to more f- willing to kill? Mm-hmm. Women. That's right. That's right. The care again. This is uh, this is this is usual. It's not everything. The care the the, the care that a, a, a mother usually has, especially for an infant. It goes deep enough that if she would honestly reflect on it, we're willing to kill for that. And that's not theoretical. I mean, we, God forbid, live in a world where that, in societies where that doesn't actually happen. But it's a thing. And that's you. So now, when we say that Hashem is jealous or vindictive or vengeful, right, what are those things getting at? Are they getting at how little? Um, the pain and suffering he causes on the world matters to him, or are they getting at how deeply things, certain things do matter to him? Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, there's, in other words is, are these, these concepts of vengeance, vindictiveness, hatred, by the way, the author is going to go on to say that the, you, the way you test the tzad, the very fair out of tzaddik, how, how much of a tzaddik is a tzaddik, is actually by looking at, at their hatred. It's a much more obvious thing. These things all come from a strong sense of deep caring and attachment. And the rule goes like this. The more deeply I value and care about someone or something, the more I will, will going, if, if, the, if the situation arises, be willing to engage in behaviors and attitudes that can be characterized under these kinds of things like hatred, vengeance, vindictiveness, and etc. So, what is the Torah telling us about Hashem every time it says that he's a jealous God or he's a vengeful God? He cares. That he cares. And you know, actually, the Rambam says something very interesting. He says, why is jealousy a bad trait? Why is vengeance a bad trait? You know what he said? He says, because the things that people care about are stupid. They don't deserve that level of attachment. That's why. You didn't give me, you didn't, you didn't let me watch my t- favorite television show, so now I'm not going to share my ice cream with you. Right? The problem is not like vengeance as a, as, a, as a mode of being is inherently problematic, but that shouldn't have that kind of a hold on you. But like, you wiped out my people. Yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be nice to you anymore. That's fine. Do you say Rambam? Rambam, Rambam. In the laws of hatred, the law, sorry, in the laws of, of vengeance, 
he says the reason why it's prohibited is because the things that people are vengeful of are transient and unimportant that have to do with their material existence. Which is why actually the Torah is in favor of hatred, vengeance, and these kinds of things when they're connected to something that is truly important and meaningful. Okay? We actually see this elucidated in the Torah that we have a commandment to hate a Amalek as the eternal enemies of God. Meaning if you care about God, you shouldn't be tolerant of his enemies. Okay? So, in other words, and now I'll, I'll make this practical. What happens if your kid comes home and says, and, and says um, somebody was bullying them? And you take a um, you know, mature, disinterested approach of saying, realizing you know, that children fight and there's different sides of the issue and understand. And how, does your, what do have, how does your child feel walking away from that encounter? That you don't care. Now, if you actually like, go to the school and take that child and pulverize him, <laughs> right, that's probably not the best decision to make because that behavior in that particular way isn't warranted. So, but is there like a, something in between those two things? Which is the child picks up on the fact that on some gut level, like you would do that other than the fact that it's just not an effective way of dealing with the situation. But you care enough about your child, like if that were effective, that's where you would be. Then how does a child walk away feeling? That they have a parent who's really theirs. And that's really what the Torah is trying to get at every time it uses these descriptions. Oh, because th- that's always used in the context of the Jewish people blowing off God's relationship with them. It's never used as just that, or, or, or it's used as the, as, uh, in the context of the non-Jews oppressing God. It's never used just like a general everyday, oh, and by the way, I like ice cream and I'm jealous. Like, it's not, it's not, context is important. I think, in the, if I remember correctly, it's in the context of taking God's name in vain, swearing falsely, saying that God basically has no sac- is not sacred to you. I was like, I'm not okay with that. Right? Now, so, and this, by the way, is an important thing, is that every description of God, you have to sufficiently abstract and get at what is the, you know, what, it, what, it, what is the verse really trying to get, what is it trying to get at? Okay, so, and that kind of goes back to the idea of caring. Right? So, vengeance is just another aspect of caring, which is why, by the way, religions that are really, really, against vengeance on principle are also downplay a lot about the importance of caring. They go kind of hand in hand. There's a lot of Eastern religions that are about that, that the conflicts that caring causes conflict, right? Because if I care about someone and you hurt them, now I have a conflict with you. So then what's the solution to that if we're conflict avoidant? What? Become caring avoidant. And Judaism thing is no, care more and deal with the conflicts in the most pragmatic way. Sometimes that is like wiping out your enemies and sometimes it's avoiding them and sometimes it's turning them not into your enemies, but. All right, so what do we have? God is um, infinitely psychologically vulnerable. We mentioned that. He's infinitely caring to the point that he will engage in conflict if that's what it takes. That's another thing. We mentioned something else. That's under jealousy? That's under jealousy, vengeance. So is that what we're saying, like our godly soul? Oh, so our godly soul is like that also. So anyone know the story of Pinchas? Anyone know the story? Yes or no? No. 
No, okay. So Pinchas, this is a very interesting story in the Chumash. What? It's a dad's name. I was trying to make someone laugh once and I said, did you know my dad's Hebrew name is Pinchas? Because I think it's a funny name. Okay. So Pinchas, so Pinchas, so what happened was um, that the, the nation of Moab decided that they wanted to um, make sure that the Jews would not get God's protection anymore and that they would do so by getting the Jews to commit immoral behavior with the Moabite women and worship idols. Mm-hmm. And they were quite successful. To the point that even some of the leaders of the Jewish people um, participated in this. And one of them wanted to make a public point that this was, the, that this was uh, a perfectly acceptable thing to do. His name was Zimri. He took um, one of, he took a, it was a Midianite princess and, and he said they were going to go do things that are forbidden. And he made a public declaration of this and saying, this is perfectly fine. Moses, Aaron, you can't do anything to stop me. And Moses and Aaron were very concerned because they didn't know what to do to stop him. And then there was Pinchas, who was Aaron's grandson, who was not a Kohen, because when Hashem made Aaron into a Kohen, he said, you, your four sons, and their future descendants. And Pinchas was already born at that time, so he was grandfathered out. His grandfather was a Kohen, his father was a Kohen, but he was not a Kohen. Anyway, he saw what was happening. That's what the verse says. He saw what was happening. He picked up a spear. He followed them into the tent. And um, he made shish kebab. <laughs> and then he brought them out of the tent on the shish kebab and said, this is what happens when you mess with God. And then that's the end of the Parsha. <laughs> the next Parsha, God says, because Pinchas was, and they use the same word, kina, which could be jealous, vengeful, right? It has the same, this family's meaning. Because Pinchas, or zealous, because Pinchas um, acted with vengeance or jealousy on my behalf and, and he quieted my vengeance therefore as a reward and there's an important rule here in Torah is that the reward always fits what you do I give him my covenant of peace that makes a lot of sense right okay why is Hashem giving him his covenant of peace because what is peace according to Torah like we're not if, if we're not fighting then we're at peace What? That's not what peace is. Peace is not where there's, n- where there's an absence of conflict. Peace is where you're so connected, there can't be conflict. And that's actually the two sides of the same coin. If you're really connected to something that you can't be in conflict with it, you care that deeply. When something else is in conflict with the thing you care about, then how, what mode are you in? This kind of jealous, vengeance, fighting mode. In other words, go use back kind of the maternal instinct. The, the, the mother being so attached to her child that she could never feel like, like that she and the child would ever be ever, you know, ever be separated. That same thing, if someone threatens the child, is now takes on a more violent side to it. So the thing is like this, and this is why actually one of the commentators say, it doesn't say Pinchas was walking around with a spear. What does it say? He saw what happened and picked up the spear. Notice he wasn't a vengeful person as like a character trait, but he cared that much about God that he couldn't allow another desecration of God's name, another destruction of the Jewish people. And so you see the Torah does not see vengeance in principle as a problem. It sees vengeance as a manifestation of caring. And in some contexts, that is the appropriate manifestation of caring. And in some contexts, it's obviously an inappropriate manifestation of caring. And then the same thing, by the way, is true of love. Love is not always positive. Okay. It's like this. I know. It, but like, a 
associate that with like not thinking logically. I know. This is, is that true in this case as well? Like when you're in the state of vengeance? So the answer the answer to that is it's not the answer is it's not thinking logically, but it's not it, it, it's it's the Sidis breaks human psychology, which we're gonna talk about this later, in, into three basic levels, which is sub rational, rational and super rational. Which means you're not thinking, but if you would be thinking, you wouldn't do that. Then there's your thinking. And then there's you're touching something so deep that your thinking itself would just give in to this place. Um, so you kind of think about like, you know, when I eat too many potato chips, if I thought more about it, I probably wouldn't do that. And then, right. And, but, but then like when you rush your child to the hospital, right? That's also like a not thinking thing, but it's a different kind of a not thinking. It's like, even if you stopped and thought about it, what would your thinking say? This is too important. Why are you stopping and thinking? So, so it comes from that higher place. In the case of Pinchas, I'm saying. Okay. So this is why it's very important. You, have to, and you, can't, you can't interpret what any of these verses descriptions of God unless you know the context in which Torah wants you to take the description. And this is a problem, is if you live in more than one cultural system, you have different um, um, assumptions about the meaning and context of what words are. And so that means very hard, because someone says something that has a different connotation, right? Vengeance, when the Torah is, uses this word kina, it means that you care very deeply to your core about something, to the point that you're willing to be in conflict over it. Is that good, bad, or does it depend? From the Torah's point of view, it depends. What do you care about? And is this the appropriate time to manifest it? Okay. So, how much does your godly soul care? Infinite. And therefore, how much conflict is it willing to engage with, if necessary? Infinite. That's right. Oh yeah, the godly soul is dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. <laughs> I want you to understand that chassidus is like you can make it all sound fluffy and inspiring, or you can like realize that it's it's it was controversial for a reason. And and that's actually one of the things Alter wants to get at is they have we have to take the long short route. We have to take an approach where we process this in a way that it actually becomes integrated into our being and not just you know try and jury rig the whole thing and get in touch with that because maybe even if you succeed it's not necessarily going to be a very stable you know imagine just one day all of a sudden your godly soul just wakes up you know your life might kind of collapse around you because <laughs> all of a sudden you discover within yourself the inability to infinitely care and be infinitely psychologically vulnerable right and to stand have it to withstand an infinite amount of conflict because of things that are truly deeply transcendently important like if that just like all of a sudden just shows up in your mind one day, I mean, you might do something heroic, but you're probably gonna have a hard time like raising a family. Okay. Fine. But that's the thing is that there is this part of the true event. Oh, the other thing is you can't improve the godly soul, you can't ruin it, right? So there's three things that we've mentioned. Yeah. What's an example of conflict that your soul would be involved in? Through would or would not? Would. Would? Um, like fighting wars. So, when communism came on the scene, so the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe held a Febregen. And in the Febregen, he basically publicly declared war on communist Russia. <laughs> I'm not kidding. 
they, they were they were KGB agents, or they weren't called KGB agents at the time. They were like NKVD agents. And he said, in the, he said, I know they're here, and I know they're listening, and I don't care. I'm telling you now, no one should cooperate with them. Doesn't matter what you do. And he said, and even in, and he opened up his jacket and opened up his shirt so you could see his tzitzis. He says, and even if you see he, this body pierced and bleeding in the streets, it doesn't matter. You don't cooperate with them. We're going to fight them. We're going to defeat them. And this was like this, like the high point of Stalinist persecution, and like there was like, like this is a little ridiculous. Like, <laughs> like the Lubavitcher having a bunch of Hasidim who like don't know anything are gonna we're gonna, but of course there's no more communist Russia, so, and 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 yeah, actually the mikvah that the communists the, the mikvah in the Reb, the previous Rebbe's father's house that the communists sealed up was recently uncovered, and it turns out the mikvah was still intact and perfectly kosher. It survived the whole communist regime under a plate of, under a floor of cement. Um, anyway, so, and that's an example, but you want other ones, Hanukkah, Purim, yeah. Jews not willing, not willing to renounce their Judaism even if they're being burned at the stake in Spain. I mean, do you want me to go on? I mean, sorry. Unfortunately, a common theme in our Jewish history. that's an expression of what were you dying I want to avoid this because it's disturbing. Okay, in the Crusades, <laughs> you asked. In the Crusades, it became very clear that the Crusaders would force Jews to convert by pain of death. And then it became very clear that they would kill the men and forcibly convert the women and children. And it became, and as this became known, and when Jewish communities were surrounded by the mobs of the Crusaders and realized that the local count was not giving them protection, it became unfortunately quite common that the heads of families would kill their wives and children and then kill themselves so that wasn't nobody would convert. Wasn't it like when there was so, um, like yeah. pogroms that they would, was it, was it inherent? Is that in Masada? In Masada, yeah. Masada's different because Masada was a political thing. And it's also a cold debate whether that question, whether that actually happens. The only source of that is, um, what's his name? Josephus and Josephus likes to make things appealing to the Roman audience and it's more heroic and it appeals to Roman sensibility so it's very questionable like I one person escaped and she told me like okay, it was right. a program in York right York right so in York this yeah this happened in York yeah, this, 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 but this unfortunately was, was not an I wouldn't say it's a common thing that happened in Crusades but it was not infrequent that family that the heads of households would, would kill every member of their family and themselves to make sure that nobody was forcibly converted um that's, yeah. You, I, the first stuff I said was sounding more heroic and nicer. This is more disturbing. But yeah, that's, that's no, but the, the, the answer to the question. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Can we go back to the question of self-esteem? Yes. Okay. So does God have a positive self-esteem? Because remember, that's all about our godly soul. We want to know about our godly soul. Does it have a positive or negative self-esteem? Is this the full thing that we're doing? I, yes. I think so. Keep it tracked. Okay. So what's the self-esteem? Close. How you value yourself, right? The words, the word esteem there is an evaluate. It comes from the word like the same word root as estimate, which is an evaluation. So, which means like this: in order to have a self-esteem, what you need to have is you need to have a self. Okay, right? That's obvious. Okay, but you actually would need to have something more than we have. What's called a self-concept, which means the thing that you think yourself actually is. Now. Is your self-concept always correct? No. But when you're evaluating yourself, you're not really evaluating yourself. What you're evaluating is your concept of yourself, right? Does that make sense? 
So, there's a, you, so you have a concept of what you think you are or who you think you are. And then you evaluate that, right? But the problem is if you're evaluating that, you have to have a standard by which you're evaluating it, right? You can't evaluate something. Like an evaluation means you're, you're measuring something against a particular standard. Yeah. So if you're going to have a self-esteem, there have to be a self-concept which is being measured, right? And then some other concepts of self that is not your, that's not your self-concept, but it's like the, thing you, your, 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 the, the ideal concept that you're measuring yourself against. Right? This is why we speak so much important about like the messages we send people about what's good and what's bad. Like if I tell you that being a kind person is good, then the measuring stick you use to value yourself is to how much does my self-concept look kind? And if it does, then I'm a better person. If it doesn't, then I'm a worse person, right? Make sense? Just like physically, if you're measuring something, you need to, then the thing you're measuring, and then the measuring stick that you're measuring it against. Okay. But what else do you need if, you're, if you are doing this? Mm-hmm. Well, the opinion is what comes as a result of do you measure up or not? Against someone else. Yeah, there's, there, you have to be looking at yourself, right? So in other words, like this, there's you looking at this concept of yourself, and then weighing it against this other standard and then deciding do you measure up or not, right? So how many parts of you are there? There's the part of you who's doing the measuring, there's the part of you who's being measured, and there's the part of you which is the standard of that you're measuring yourself against. So how many parts are there? One second, before that. Do we believe that God is a holy trinity in this religion? No, no. Right? God is one. He's not made of different parts. So does God have a self-esteem? Does it conceptual? Like, does it make any sense that a being that is not made of parts could have a self-esteem? Yeah. Okay, so that, originally I brought up the jealousy thing because I was thinking self-esteem. Like, what are things that God says about himself? So it sounds like you're saying he can't have self-esteem because he can't have a self-concept. He can't have distinct aspects of self. It's a self, God, because one of the things that Hashem says, and he's really intent on this one, is that he's one, and one means not indivisible, not broken into parts, and that means that you, you, can't, you can't think of God having some kind of a complex inner psychology where one part of himself is interacting and relating to another part of himself. We do until you start examining your inner life and then you actually don't. Like, the one that like, you can't actually deal, like if you have, if you have issues with, with low self-esteem or negative self-esteem, you actually have to realize, wait a minute, there's actually different things here. There's my actual self. There's the concept of myself. There's my observant ego, which by the way, terms in two forms, active and passive, I don't wanna get into that. And then there's the standards by which I'm measuring, the, that by which my observant self is measuring my self-concept. And, 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 and once you are aware of that, you can start like, changing your self-esteem and like, realizing, oh, wait a minute, I'm holding myself to certain standards and where do those standards come from? Or maybe I should just stop thinking about whether I have a certain, to certain standards. There is a lot of inner sight. That's why if like, you like, take any, like, whether it's like a professional class or you go to like, some like, self-help thing or you read a book, there's a diagram in there with some arrows and charts about like, one part of you to another part of you because different parts of you. But we're not there yet in Tanya. We're at this part. That's at the bottom of the page. How can God say about himself that he's jealous if he's not going through this process? Oh, that's a very good question. So the answer to that is, is that any description that we have of God um, 
is describing the underlying effect but not the underlying mechanism. So let me give you an example of what I mean. If I have a pot of water which is hot and boiling, we all know water does not boil itself, so clearly there is a heat source that boiled the water, yes? That makes sense? What do we know about the heat source that boiled the water? Well, what do we know for sure? Really? Fine. It's hot. Yes, we know for sure. Okay, but we don't actually know for sure that's hot because microwaves heat water, but they are themselves not hot. It's separate from water. No, this is very important. That's true, but that's not what you're. Yes, but that part I want to get to right now. Okay. In other words, like this, I have two pots of boiling. I have two pots of hot water. This one was put on fire, and this one was heated by a microwave. Right. So I can say they were both heated by a heat source. But if the only heat sources I know are fires, I assume that the one heated by the microwave is heated by the same mechanism. But I'm wrong. So in other words, there is, when we speak about these qualities, and notice these are all relational qualities. I'm describing, in other words, like compassion, jealousy. So in other words, like this. There's, when God cares about us, if my choice are to say God cares or doesn't care, which is more accurate? to say that he cares. But then if I ask the question, okay, what are the underlying psychological mechanisms that allow human beings to care? Is that what's happening with God? No, so he's achieving a similar kind of an effect with totally different causes. This is actually one of the reasons why it's a little silly to ask questions about why God cares about anything. Like if I ask you why you care about something, your answer always takes the form of presupposing that our minds work basically the same way. Notice work, like there's different aspects of our minds. And then you're gonna explain to me, like back to you get to a certain aspect of the mind that I also share, that I understand. But if God doesn't have a complex psychology because he's one, then what generates caring in God is totally alien to me. So I'd have no way of like making sense of it. Which is why when God tells Eov, and Eve says, why do you cause me to suffer? God says, do you know what it's like to be God? And Eve says, no, I don't. And that's the end of the discussion. It's more poetic, but... So God is like a microwave and we're all cavemen holding a fire? Something like that. Okay. And that's why, we, that's, why we can, that's why we can understand more about how God affects us and stands in relationship to us. But when we start examining the underlying mechanisms of what makes God work, we start to realize it doesn't make any sense Right? You can't have one indivisible being sitting and thinking, you know, am I really living up to my potential? <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense. So, then, so well, but think about it. Most of what you do is motivated by that thought of, uh, most of your conscious positive choices are motivated by this thought of am I living up to my potential, right? But if that kind of a psychological state can't exist by God, then now I have no point of reference understanding how God has something analogous to motivation, and yet God has revealed through prophecy that he does have some sort of thing. Going back to the godly soul, all this is also true of the godly soul, which means not only are we really cavemen unequipped to understand God, we're not really equipped to understand ourselves either. So where's the other part What? We have an animal soul, which is not godlike at all. Yeah. Yeah. So we can try and use what we know as analogies for what we don't know, but they're only that good. They're only analogies. We all primarily are animals. We are in our ex- conscious experience. We experience mostly our animal soul. But that's like saying an infant is mainly 
uh, is mainly just an eating and pooping machine, which is wrong. It's just that's what they're mostly that's experiencing, it. right? <laughs> they're mid- that's b- now. right now. That part that's like the mitzvahs. That's the mitzvahs. But like, no, they're a person with all the sacredness of life of a person, right? <laughs> and hopefully you can see that, even though they can't experience it, you can see it, right? Okay. Yes. It's, they do not have that capacity. Their ability to care has to be weighed against the harm, the destruction that they could cause them because, from, from caring too much. Like they won't go through the infinite conflict. Right. Right. Now, I mean, again, the thing, is, the thing with the word infinite is that, you know, you can never really test for infinite because if they keep going and going, it still could be fine. It's just they haven't reached their limit. So it's not like something you can t- empirically, you can't empirically show infinite. You can only empirically show finite. If someone, if, someone, if, someone, if someone breaks, then they're clearly that wasn't infinite. But if they don't break, it doesn't mean it is infinite. It just means that they haven't reached their limit. Yes? So the concept of us Um, no, actually, that's the reference to human beings. The Mishnah says um, that um, precious is humanity because they were created in God's image, and they're especially precious that God revealed that they're created in his image. Precious are the Jewish people that they're God's children. Notice here the analogy is children, right? So, because the image is actually a different thing. We'll, I'm going to get to later in time more with the, with, the, with the images and... There's images and images of images, but yeah. Um, that he, doesn't, he does not use this idea here of, of God's image. He's using the, he doesn't use those verses at all. He uses the breathing and the... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? And, and the analogy of the, the father and the child. Okay? And the mission differentiates between the two. Um, yes? Well, I mean, are you asking about the picture part or the dialogue part? I, I guess I'm feeling that you're going to say the picture part is definitely not okay. The I'm picture curious. part is definitely not okay. Okay. I'm but curious. the dialogue part, the Torah does that. <laughs> we just read it. And God, and God said to himself, like, he does, like the Torah does that. Wait, but the Torah can also say, hey, I'm all in. That doesn't mean we can say it. Fine. I mean, no, no, this is fine. The, 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 there's the, the, re, the reason why, the very basic reason why it's okay to use verbal dialogue and it's not okay to use pictures is because when you use dialogue everyone for the more or less interprets it on the level that makes sense to them what I mean to say is like this if you have a child the child takes the dialogue very literally right as you become a sophisticated adult you start to realize that there's an element of metaphor involved right images though touch a place in your unconscious mind that corrupt you which is why the Torah is very against images representing God like it, it, whereas this, you know, language doesn't have that same effect on you. So, now it could still be irreverent, <laughs> but that has guess more as how it's pretty. Yeah. Okay. Fine. So, so your godly soul doesn't have a self-esteem, does it? Well, no. 
And a jagali soul is not sitting and thinking, you know, I'm a great being. I'm a lousy being. It does, like, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen to the godly soul, at least not on, at core. Hopefully, and that's one of the that's one of the techniques that the altar is going to employ in Tanya is to get your animal soul to hold the godly soul in high esteem. That'll help. Okay. Um, your godly soul. Okay. What else is true about God? God is kind. Now, what does kindness mean? Even if we deserve it or don't. So. The way the way the the way the way that the Torah understands kindness, kindness is always analogized to water. If you have water in a high place, the water tries to flow to a low place, right? Which is, and this is very tricky because what the Torah views as kindness is that the sense of having itself causes a sense of sharing. What's real kindness is that, like, for instance, it's very funny because a lot of people don't think, this, don't think of this initially, but if you reflect on it, it's very true. The intellect is very kind. Does that make sense to you? No. No, okay. What if, when the intellect really feels like it knows something, what does the intellectual part of the person want to do? Share. Right? The more you really feel like you have knowledge, the more you feel the need to give that knowledge and share that knowledge. That's what kindness is. Now, some people actually feel kindness with money. What does that mean? The more money they make, the more money they have, the more they want others to have money. And the more they have the money that they have. Right? Which is different than I have enough money, now I have extra, I'll give you my extra. That's not kindness. It's be, I mean, it's a good thing to do, but it's not kindness. Is it like in the sense that in like a physical, like, in like so many like chemical, physical processes, like I suppose like things move from like high concentration to low concentration to like... It's like that, yeah. Out? Yeah, mm-hmm. right. It's the sense that, that, that all of the goodness of reality can't be concentrated in me. It has to be... It, 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 and the more you feel it in you, the more you have the urge to spread it out of you. Right, there's like a more, there's a greater... Right. Right. And so that's actually, so when we say God is kind, God has true being. And what is that, that true being of God? Does that make God feel, oh, I have true being and nothing else exists. So that's wonderful. Or is the opposite the case? God's sense of true being is something that God, again, this is you know, borrowing words because we don't have words, but elicits within him this, this, this urge to spread that out. As the as the Talmudic as the, the Jewish philosophical expression goes, the nature of good is to do goodness. That, that my having something makes me feel that I, I need others to have what I have. But with with those kinds of kindness and like physically, there's an ability to like go back and forth. Is there that same ability that then like the kindness that God gives that? Yes, that's actually, that's actually one of the differences between Kabbalah and, and like rational Jewish philosophy is that in Kabbalah, they point out that God allows us for it to be a two-way street, whereas the rational philosophy makes it all going in one direction. What's an example of the two-way interaction, like us giving back in Kabbalah? Have you ever heard the idea that, have you ever, have you ever heard the, someone say, when you do a mitzvah, you make God happy? Mm-hmm. Okay, so very simply, very, very simply, the rational 
philosophical approach in Judaism says, what that really means is that when you do a mitzvah, you are becoming a better person, you're achieving your divine potential, and you're becoming more to fulfillment of yourself. There's nothing flowing back up from you to God, though. And Kabbalah says, no, there is. And it's metaphorically described as making God happy. Depends what you conceive of Mashiach to be. According to Chassidus, which definitely has Kabbalistic leanings, the answer is yes, but there are definitely other schools of thought that would think not. But yeah, you, this is a major difference between Kabbalistic ideas and, and, and non Kabbalistic ideas. Kabbalistic ideas allow for the idea that it's two ways. Yeah. Is the idea that God is an exile with us, is that mainstream? Is that what? The idea that God is an exile with us right now, is that a mainstream idea? That's a, that's a, it's a, it's a statement of the sages. It's a general rule, okay. which is that if you disagree with the statement of the sages, you're not orthodox. Right. So, <laughs> that's, a, that's an orthodox statement. Now, the different streams within orthodoxy and debate as to what that means, but that's really like, that's so a that, statement that of the sages. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having yeah. okay, so so That's not like some crazy Chabad idea. There are some crazy Chabad ideas, but that's not one of them. Right, so if, if everyone who is orthodox agrees that God is in exile with us, well, the question is, what does that statement mean? Which one? The God is in exile with us. Meaning, there's an interpretation in which God is just happy? I know. Okay. Like I will tell you something. There, there's... One of the things that, that Kabbalah does, and Chassidus does even more, and Chabad Chassidus does even more, is take everything the sages say very, very seriously, and while stripping away from its childish understanding, not in any way detracting from its literalness, which is an interesting thing. Which means that when we say God, we mean God is action exile. Now we have to understand what is the meaning of God, and what is the meaning of exile, and how could God be in exile, but, but it, is not, it, is not, it is not like a figure of speech. But there are definitely streams in Orthodox Judaism that like to take a lot of things, statements like that, and use them as figures of speech because it's just easier to understand them that way. And once you make something a figure of speech, you know, you avoid a lot of these problems and also a lot of these consequences that you're saying. It's both. It's a legitimate philosophy that goes all the way back to medieval Judaism. It was controversial then, it's controversial now, and you know. I mean, there, the, the, when the Rambam says, when it says God loves you, that's a figure of speech. It, obviously, God doesn't experience love because God doesn't have a psychology like us. And Chassidus would say, no, there is, we have to go to a deeper, more profound understanding of what love is to understand how God could love. Does God say that he loves us? Yes, I have the You want to hear something very beautiful? So well, there's a custom in the night of Shavuos for the men to stay up all night learning. I, I discovered that, that unmarried women seem to do this also. Um, married women seem to like, decide they should go to sleep, because <laughs> like, they're or at least the ones with kids. Um, that seems to be the thing. But the, 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 the root of the custom, um, the root of the custom in, in Kabbalah would make it more sense for only to be men. Um, but anyway, so one of the things that according to Kabbalah you're supposed to do is you're supposed to, the man's supposed to read through the whole Torah. Um, in one night. But you don't have to read everything. What you, what you do is you read the beginning and end of every Parsha, the beginning and every book of Tanakh, the beginning and every chapter of Mishnah, no, of every, sorry, of every tractate of Mishnah, 
And then there's a book. It's, it's a book called Tikkun Lashavos. And and then and and then you read a list of all 613 mitzvahs, and then you read a section of the Zohar describing what this is all means spiritually. Um, and it's all about like adorning the the whole idea is like the whole idea is like like the giving of the Torah the next morning is like the wedding, and so you're reading the Torah, all these things like adorning the Jewish people. Um, so anyway, in that Zohar. So at the end of the Zohar, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who's the main character in the Zohar, he wants to, he, ha, he has the secret he wants to reveal, but he's unsure. And I'm paraphrasing, he's back and forth. And he's like, I have this thing to reveal, but I, but I can't reveal it because it's too profound. But if I don't reveal it now, when will I ever reveal it? But, if I, but, but, but people listen to back and forth and back and forth. In the end, he says, I have to reveal it. I can't, can't hold it back. And the big secret is, and then this is how the Tikkun Lel Shavuos actually ends. The big secret is, and that's it's not in Aramaic, but it is everything about us boils down to love. As the verse says, I love you, says Hashem. It is out of my love for you, and you should love Hashem, your God. That's Rabbi Shem Baruchai's big secret. So, it's all a big love affair between the Jewish people and God. That's his big secret. And I think, like, what's the big secret? Obviously, I'm not getting it, because, like, doesn't everybody know that already? Um, but that goes back to, remember what I spoke about, that there's, there's four different levels of Torah study, and secrets are secrets, because even when you say them, people don't really still don't know what it means. Okay. Um, yeah, so, the, you, but in, in Kabbalah and Chassidus, love is literal, but then the question is, what does love actually mean? Whereas they always say love is just a metaphor for something else. It's a figure of speech. Okay, one, there was one other thing about the godly soul that I wanted to say. Yes? Why do we call the kindness Well, because it's Hebrew, so the word is chesed. You can pick whatever word you want in English. Right? I'm, I'm, when I'm giving, the, one of the difficulties is that I'm translating, right? And so I have to, I'm picking words that either I think really capture the meaning or words that have just become the convention to translate them. When we speak about chesed in chesedis, um and in Torah, the real idea of, the real idea of chesed is that, is compared, is that like this tendency of water, that the higher it is, the more it feels the need to go down to a lower place. It's all so that everything gets equalized. You can call that whatever English word you want. So what does it mean about the godly soul? So the godly soul has that as well. So what happens if the godly soul has a sense that there's lacking godliness somewhere? It feels the urge to go there. Oh, that was the last thing. Okay, that was the last thing. What is the only thing that's real to God? God. Because God. God is the only thing that's real. And God is aware of that. So what's the only thing that's real to the godly soul? Also God. Or the godly soul. Oh, so this is, no, it was actually, the the only, it's the same essence. The only thing that's real to the godly soul is God. Which, which means that the godly soul... Is God. Ha, right. And this goes back into that, this idea that, when, for instance, if the father's essence is copied in the son, it's the same essence, right? But there's a difference, which is that this son is an extension or copy of the father, but the father isn't a copy or an extension of the son, right? Mm-hmm. So there is some element of asymmetry. Right, and so yeah, the godly the, the only thing that's real to God is God. The only thing that's real to the godly soul is God, which means that God is real to Himself, but the godly soul isn't real to itself, which is a weird idea, which will be elaborated later on in Tanya. So this thing of godly soul being a part of God, it's, it's not like it's not a it's supposed to be an inspiring metaphor. It's an idea that's supposed to be pondered and reflected upon. That there's a part of me 
which is, is has all these essential characteristics like God, and you start to realize like, well, that doesn't seem to be, where is that in me? I don't feel like that. There was a famous chassid who, every night before you go to sleep, before you go to sleep, you're supposed to uh, reflect on your little day or your life or something. And so he would, his reflection would consist of saying this first line of Tanya, the second soul of a Jew is a piece of God from on high, literally. And he'd say it over and over again, reflect on it, until he would burst into tears and, and he would say, so where is it? Meaning he reflected on it and he was so convinced that this is a true part of himself and then he was so disturbed that in his day-to-day life, it's not how he sees himself, it's not how he experiences himself, he doesn't see it manifest. So that's very different than the animal soul, right? So do you see the difference between the animal soul, godly soul, it's not like the difference between like just the standard, I want to do a good thing, I want to do a bad thing. There's one, just put us all back together before we move on next week into related topics. The animal soul at its core is all about my personal well-being. Sometimes that is selfish. Sometimes that's with good character traits of compassion, caring. But it's fundamentally ungodly, covers over the godly, and it's all about my personal well-being. And there's a lot of self-reflection and self-esteem and all of that stuff going in. And that can be very healthy and it can be very unhealthy. It can be turned towards good and it can be, unfortunately, turned towards evil. And then you have this other thing which like God cannot be broken no matter how much pain it experiences, like God cares infinitely no matter the conflict that it'll have to endure, like God is in no way spending time thinking about itself and what it's like. I'm impressed that I'm not working. Like God, the only thing that's real to it is God. Like God cannot stand that there's something devoid of God, devoid of truth, devoid of reality. That's like a totally different kind of creature. It's a totally different kind of being. Like the difference between the godless and the animals is bigger than the difference between ants and people. Like it's a different kind of creature. It's actually not even a creature because like God, it's not really created. And so it's not, godly soul is not a synonym for your good inclination, your desire to do Torah and mitzvahs. It could be your godly soul's desire to do Torah and mitzvahs, but it's not a synonym for that. It's a whole different level of what it means to to be who you are. And we're saying every single Jew has that and they have that automatically and it can't be made better and it can't be made worse and they can't lose it, they can't gain it. The one thing that can happen is it can be more revealed, less revealed, and its revelation can be more integrated into your humanity or God forbid, it could be more conflict with your humanity. Now, there are a bunch of complications with this idea that the author was gonna address in the rest of the chapter, but that's the idea. So godly soul means it's just like God. And that's the place it is. Yes? Um, just back on what we were talking about jealousy, it also says that God is slow to anger. Mm-hmm. How does that coincide? Because, because... What makes someone slow to anger? Well, there's two basic things, reasons why one could be slow to anger. One is because what you're doing is not significant enough to arouse my anger. Right? Alternatively, what I care about um, makes me immune to being angry. So for instance, like let's say somebody, I'm just, um, they're, they're, they're marrying off a child, they're making a bar mitzvah, yeah? And they're really, 
the joy of that really speaks to them at that moment, right? Things that would normally anger them don't, right? So, so it, and it shows up in both contexts. Sometimes God's relationship with the world is such that the world is so insignificant, nothing can bother him. And sometimes it's things that really, in principle, should bother him, but it's what's called an esrotson. He's, he's the, the positive element of the connection is so manifest that there's no room for the, uh, I guess, the more negative, judgmental aspects to come out. Um, Oh, so there's a little discussion in Kabbalah and a lot of discussion in Chassidus of can you and should you, and if so, how do you go about it, and yeah. It's sort of like the level of a parent. In fact, they might be really angry at what their child just did, but they, the love of their child is far surpasses how ever angry they can get. Or not at all. You have parents? Have you ever seen them angry <laughs> with you? <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> there is, there, yes, what you're saying is true, but there's other, there's more stuff that goes on. Like, hum, human beings are incredibly complicated. Um, and so, although we talk about people in very, you know, ways we say things that are true, like in real life, it's always much more messy. Okay, next, what we're going to do is we're going to start dealing with some of the complications that are implied by this idea that every that the godly soul is basically godly like God because it's derived from the same essence as God. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good Shabbos. Good Shabbos.